This is The Guardian. Today, should song lyrics have a place in the courtroom? On the night of February the 20th in the year 2000, there was a shooting at a hip-hop gig in the town of Slidell in Louisiana, and a 19-year-old man died. In the hours afterwards, the police arrested a suspect and took him in for questioning. Were you at Club Station Flight overnight? Yes, sir. Okay, well, why were you there? I was there to perform. What kind of performing do you do? I rap. You're a rap singer? Yes. The man they'd arrested on suspicion of murder was Mac Phipps, the 22-year-old rapper who'd been due to play that night. So you have a nickname, the Camouflage Assassin? Don't you have a nickname, the Camouflage Assassin? One of the detectives asks him. That's one of my rap names. That's one of my rap names, he replied. Did you shoot? No, no, sir. You know, I know I didn't shoot. What well, would you say if I, told, if I told you we got witnesses to put a gun in your hand? They thought you was damn gun in your hand, shooting people. Nah, I didn't shoot anybody, sir. You know, I swear I didn't shoot anybody. I swear I didn't shoot anybody. That's what Mac Phipps told the police, but they charged him with murder and he'd be looking at up to 40 years in prison if he was found guilty. When the case went to trial, the prosecution team used the rapper's own lyrics against him. They zeroed in on these words. Murder, murder, kill, kill. In the two decades since Mac was arrested, rap lyrics have been used in at least 500 other criminal cases in the US. But for years, people have argued that they shouldn't be allowed in court. Cases and trials have to be about specific facts. They can't be about artistic expression. They can't be about whether or not a rap artist uses certain lyrics. And from a defense attorney perspective, we hate this. It allows the government to rely on uh, racist and race-based uh, stereotypes and narratives with respect to the defendants who are usually targeted in these cases. Now, California is set to become the first US state to pass a law restricting how forms of creative expression, from music to books, can be used as evidence in criminal proceedings. In New York, a similar law is being proposed, and legal campaigners are trying to get this passed at a national level too, in Congress. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, Rap lyrics on trial. Sam Levin, you're a reporter for Guardian US and you've been writing recently about how rappers are having their lyrics used against them in court cases. Throughout this episode, we're going to be hearing some of the interviews that you've been doing with McKinley Mac Phipps, who that happened to. For people who don't know who Mac Phipps is, tell me about him. How did his career get started? 
Yeah, so McKinley Phipps was born in 1977. He grew up in New Orleans and he was interested in rap from a very, very young age. He talks about watching a video of New Edition when he was a young kid. And that was like a little rapping part at the end of it. And I learned the words to it. And I was like, if these guys can do this, this might be something that I could do. He thought it was a way that he could get rich. You know, I come from a house where I'm the oldest of six. My parents, they worked, but we, we had hard times. By eight years old, he was rapping in school and and won an elementary school talent show. And from there, he said the rest was sort of history. I knew that that's what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Mac, who was known as Lil Mac at the time, actually landed his first record deal at the age of 13, which is quite extraordinary. He wrote a lot of songs on that album. And then he also had a producer who wanted to make him a sort of young, fresh prince who wrote a song for him about, like, wanting to have a car so he could drive around and meet all his girlfriends. It's it's pretty goofy. But, um, you know, he was clearly really talented, a kind of prodigy uh, at a very young age. And then when he was 19, he signed to the record label No Limit, which at that time in the mid-90s was one of the most influential music labels in the US. You know, we represent down south hustling. Uh, Master P got the same energy from the hood that took it to another level. No Limit. Snoop uh, was signed to it, among other massive artists. Mac put out a few albums with No Limit, and it's lyrics from those albums that would eventually be used against him in court. How was his sound and his persona changing over that time? Yeah, he talks about how his sound did change. No Limit had a specific audience, and he wanted to cater to that audience, reflecting the genre of the time. I felt like on No Limit, I would stick out like a sore thumb because it was totally different from my style of rap. So I just studied what their fans liked and feed their market, and it was lucrative. And so his lyrics did become more mature and macho. He had the nickname The Camouflage Assassin, which... To him, came from actually something he loved when he was young, which was just kung fu movies. I always rapped back then like I was swinging the sword. So I chose camouflage assassin because one, I like to wear camouflage, and assassin was like my way of saying I will slaughter you with words. There was absolutely a, a pressure to play up this tough guy notion, but it was a it was a persona and it didn't reflect what was actually happening in his personal life. His career was on the up then, and in February 2000, he was booked to play what should have been just, you know, a standard gig midweek at a club in Louisiana. But what happened at that gig went on to completely change the course of Mac's life. Before he even got to the stage that night, a fight broke out and a gunshot went out. 
A man in the crowd, a 19-year-old called Baron Victor Jr., had been shot and he died. Some witnesses say that they saw Mac holding a gun. The police charged Mac with murder and he went on trial. What evidence did they bring forward against him? So police very quickly zeroed in on Mac as the suspect, despite the fact that days after Mac was arrested, someone else, a man named Thomas Williams, came to police with his pastor and confessed to the killing. So everything you tell me to state the truth, best of your knowledge? Yes, sir. He said he was working security at the event, a fight had broken out, and in the chaos and in self-defense, he ended up firing and killing this person. I looked, I went back forward to my post and I looked up and the guy was charging at me with a broken pill bottle. And I was panicked and trembling as he was coming toward me. And then I fired. Despite that, they did not arrest this man. They did not charge him. They did not treat him as the suspect and instead continued on with prosecuting Mac for murder. And police's evidence for that was thin. They had no murder weapon tying him to the crime, no DNA, no physical evidence. He also had no criminal record, and so they had nothing in his past to cite to try to paint him as a violent person. And so instead, they pulled different lyrics from his songs and relied on his name, the camouflage assassin, to paint him as someone who was dangerous and capable of murder. Now, one thing that complicates this is that the police originally asked Mac about his having a gun on his person at the gig that night. In his original questioning, he lied and said that he hadn't got one. He then later confessed that he had had a gun that night. Why didn't he admit that to police in the first place? He had a gun on him for protection, which was legally registered, but it was against the law to have a weapon that was concealed, and he didn't think he was going to be tied to this murder. And he didn't want to get in trouble for having a gun, and so he initially said he didn't have one. But that proved to be a problem for him later as they move forward with a a trial against him for murder. I will say that another major part of the case was, you know, that they had a witness who said, I saw Mac kill this person. This was a a young nurse who was pregnant at the time. What we later learned from this, this nurse is that she said she was basically forced to testify against him, that she was threatened with arrest, you know, with police saying something along the lines of, if you don't testify, you will have this baby in jail. And she was the state's star witness. Wow. Tell me about what happened in the trial then. You said that his lyrics were brought forward as a key part of the evidence. What did the prosecutors say? So the prosecutors presented him as someone who raps about his crimes and his violence, and they pulled out excerpts of his lyrics to make that case. And so I can read to you just a quick passage from closing arguments from the prosecutor who basically said, this man put a bullet into somebody, and this defendant who did this is the same defendant whose message is murder, murder, kill, kill. You F with me, you get a bullet in your brain. You don't have to be a genius to figure out that one plus one equals two. Prosecutor went on to say, I am asking you to do now what I asked you at the beginning of the trial. That is to remove the camouflage from this assassin and find him guilty of the cold-blooded, senseless murder. And the line that I just read to you, combined lyrics and words from two different songs, removed all the context, 
and additionally misquoted them, but the jury did not know that. Who was on the jury? It was an all-white jury, which was common at the time. And what was the eventual verdict? So the jury ultimately found him guilty with a 10 to 2 verdict. So the verdict was not unanimous, but in Louisiana, that still at the time allowed you to be convicted. And so he was actually convicted for manslaughter, which is a slightly lesser charge, but he still got sentenced to 30 years in prison. I was just like, wow, this man just said 30 years. In that moment, I just was like, damn. I had already tried to mentally prepare myself to receive the maximum sentence because I just, I'm a person that likes to hope for the best and prepare for the worst. But it still didn't prepare me for actually hearing him say it because there was a small glimmer of hope in me. But when that man said 30 years, I don't think I felt anything. So Sam, Mac's case isn't isolated. How did it come to be that rap lyrics could be used as evidence in criminal cases, in in hundreds of criminal cases over the years? So researchers who have studied this phenomenon trace it back to the early 1990s. You had a panic about crime. You know, this was when the tough on crime sort of mass incarceration that we're dealing with today began. It doesn't matter whether or not they're the victims of society. The end result is they're about to knock my mother on the head with a lead pipe, shoot my sister, beat up my wife, take on my sons. So I don't want to ask what made them do this. They must be taken off the street. And it was wrapped up in the rise in gangster rap groups like NWA in the early 90s. And, you know, there was this sort of moral panic about rap being a violent force. Officer White, I'm going to start with you. Let me read some of the lyrics that you object to from one of Ice-T's songs. I've got my 12-gauge sawed off. I got my headlights turned off. I'm about to bust some shots off. I'm about to dust some cops off. And the chorus begins with, cop killer, it's better you than me. Do you really believe these lyrics could incite someone to kill? When you have young people today, especially with the problems in our society, you have a young person that holds Ice-T up as a role model, they may take those lyrics literally and kill a police officer. I mean, in the early 1990s, there were two cases that kind of set the precedent for allowing rap lyrics and rap music to be used to kind of establish a person's criminal mindset and ties to specific gangs and really started to escalate in the mid-2000s. One of the researchers who studies this, Jack Lerner from the University of California, Irvine, pulled out for me an excerpt from an actual prosecutor's manual, which specifically encouraged the use of lyrics uh, in search warrants and in trials to, quote, invade and exploit the defendant's true personality and to present him as a, quote, criminal wearing a do-rag and throwing a gang sign in an effort to contrast the, quote, nicely tailored altar boy who might appear in the courtroom. So this is explicitly racist stuff, uh, encouraging prosecutors to basically exploit anything you can related to rap to win your cases, whether or not that person is guilty of the crime. I don't understand how this is a legal practice because the First Amendment protects freedom of expression. That's written into the US Constitution. And what we're talking about is artists having the freedom to express 
how they feel and their realities, but also, you know, to tell stories, to create fictional personas through their music. So how can it be that those lyrics are used against them? Well, I will say that there is a category of these cases in which the lyrics themselves are being prosecuted. And so some of the sort of 500 cases that researchers have tracked do involve artists who basically said, I'm going to kill this person or, you know, this specific officer when they argue that the lyrics themselves go beyond free speech and are material threats that should be prosecuted. But defense attorneys and experts who have studied this will tell you that there are so many examples of lyrics being taken out of context, of lyrics having no factual connection to any crimes that occurred or to any real facts. And one of the ways in which they get introduced is when defendants decide to testify on their own behalf to say, you know, I'm not a violent person. That opens the door to allow prosecutors to bring in wide evidence about that person's character. And certainly lawyers for defendants have fought very hard against this, have appealed decisions that occurred after the lyrics were used in courtrooms. But we continually see that the courts side with the prosecution. The scholars who've looked into this, how effective have they found this tactic has been with jurors? They've found that this tactic is extremely effective and That's evidenced by the fact that it's used so frequently. So, you know, if as a prosecutor, your goal is to secure a guilty verdict, why would you not use a tactic that is effective? If we're talking about songwriting as a form of storytelling or or a form of confession, I'm thinking about other music genres. You could call upon songs by Johnny Cash saying, I took a shot of cocaine and I shot my woman down. I took a shot of cocaine and I shot my woman down. Or look at like the misfits. They have lyrics like, Can I go out and kill tonight? Rip the veins from human necks. If we were to take those lines in isolation, out of context, and, and use them against those artists, we could say that they had criminal intent too. Is this happening to artists from other genres? This only really happens with rap, which is why scholars and civil rights advocates will tell you that this is a racist, discriminatory practice. You really just don't see this with any other music genre or with any other art form. There's some select cases of this happening with heavy metal, but it really just hasn't happened with with any other genre the way it has with rap. And, you know, there are studies that, that show this very clearly, that introducing rap lyrics in a courtroom creates just a strong negative bias in jurors. And so you can take lyrics that were written by white artists of a different genre, and if you present those lyrics as rap lyrics, jurors will have a much more negative connotation about them and treat them as literal. The lyrics that were used in Mac's case were interpreted one way by the prosecution. What did Mac tell you when you asked him, you know, what what was the actual intent of those lyrics? Yeah, Mac has said his lyrics were highly exaggerated and that he was really into rap battles, which are, you know, two rappers on stage kind of battling it out through their raps. They're just very combative, very kind of aggressive. First of all, Murder, Murder, Kill, Kill was a battle rap of a military uh, cadence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was kind of like Murder, Murder, Kill, Kill. And 
you know, shit's real on the battlefield. The battlefield for me was that battle rap session. That's my battlefield. That's where I, I kill, where I slaughter. But lyrically, you know what I mean? What? And then from a different song called Shellshocked, the second part of the quote, he was talking about his father, who was a Vietnam veteran. Which the prosecutor read as, F with me, you get a bullet in your brain. And the actual line is, He gave me his name, gave me the game, but if you F with me, he'll put a bullet in your brain. He'll give you a bullet in your brain. It's me basically hyper-exaggerating and giving my daddy this, this hard persona. Just like, don't F with me. My dad is a G, you know, whatever. You know what I mean? He's not saying, I will kill you if you mess with me, um, which was clearly how it was presented in the courtroom. And jurors who have since commented on this essentially said that this was a part of what convinced them of this person's guilt. You know, I think there was one juror who said something along the lines of rap had encouraged him to be violent. I think that this stance on song lyrics and the way they're perceived is just a reflection, unfortunately, of of how a certain demographic of people has been viewed for quite some time, and it didn't start with hip-hop. There are certain people that can say certain things, and they're not viewed the same way. Or it's like, well, it's freedom of speech when it comes to them. But when it comes to others, it's like, Nah, <laughs> we take it at face value. But to actually have your art used against you in a courtroom, I don't even think there's words I can describe to truly give you a description as to how I felt. Some Mac was sent to jail in 2001, and he spent the next two decades of his life inside. You obviously couldn't go through with him in your interview what all of that time was like, but what did he tell you about it? How did he cope with being in that situation? Mac is a very strong-willed person, and he talked about just how, you know, once he processed what he was going through and, and dealt with the trauma of being, you know, sentenced to 30 years he made a pact with himself to dedicate himself to getting out of prison. I came to a point where I was like, okay, McKenna, you're here. You're going to fight like hell to get out of here. However, you're here. So you're going to have to live on two different planes at one time. You're going to have to be the you that's trying to get up out of here. And you're going to have to be the you that's living in here. He tried to focus himself on, on doing the thing he loved. On the streets... I would be doing music. So if I'm in here and I can create something every day, then I'll be able to cope with this reality. And that's what I did. And he learned a lot. I mean, he, he told me about learning multiple different instruments. He performed with groups in prison. And the very first time that I played at one of the events in the prison, I had to play two pianos at one time. Oh, really? <laughs> And then the the guy who played the bass for us, I think he was shipped to another prison. I jumped on the bass guitar. I think I learned the bass guitar in like a week. (laughs) Lastly, I think the drummer for our reggae band went to the hole. He went on lockdown. 
And they looked at me and I said, y'all better not look at me. They're like, man, we need you to get on the drums. I'm like, man, the drums is the hardest instrument to play. But I, I did it. I am stubborn and determined. And that's what I, uh, that's, that's what kind of helped me along. Coming up, Mac's appeal for freedom, plus the case of Young Thug, and how lyrics are still being used in court today. Sam, we've talked about how over the years rappers have had their lyrics used against them in over 500 court cases. But no case has been bigger than the one that's happening right now against Young Thug. Only Channel 2, by the way, was in Buckhead Monday night as police arrested the rapper Young Thug, whose real name is Jeffrey Williams. He's a rapper from Atlanta who's worked with Elton John, Usher. Right now, he's got a song out with Calvin Harris and Dua Lipa. But he's in jail at the moment, awaiting trial. This is video from court of Young Thug in a blue jumpsuit. The rapper and 28 other defendants charged in a 56-count indictment. He's been charged under the RICO Act, right, which is what's been used against the mafia. It's a way for the police to target organised crime gangs. What do prosecutors say he's done? So Young Thug is facing conspiracy charges and criminal street gang activities. He and another rapper, Gunna, who's also very successful as part of a major gang indictment in Georgia. My number one focus is targeting gangs. And there's a reason for that. They are committing conservatively 75 to 80 percent of all of the violent crime that we are seeing within our community. Young Thug is the founder of Young Stoner Life, which is his record label. And what police are essentially alleging is that this group is affiliated with the Bloods gang and that, you know, YSL actually stands for Young Slime Life and that this is a, you know, violent criminal gang. And so, again, we see that a big part of that is their music, their persona and their lyrics. There's one from Young Thug. Gave the lawyer close to two mil, he handles all the killings. There's another from Take It to Trial, where he says, for slimes, you know I kill. And a lot of it is in the indictment, provided with little context of the songs in which it's appearing. So the prosecution are trying to compile these lyrics to, like in Mac's case, I guess, give a sense of... Young Thug and Gunner having this overall persona of being dangerous and and having intent to commit criminal activity. Yes. And and what's different about this case and Mac's case is that there's now widespread scrutiny on this practice. So the prosecutors are facing a lot of heat for using these lyrics as evidence from free speech groups, from civil rights groups who recognize the dangers of this practice and that there's a long history of prosecuting black and brown people 
based on, you know, alleged affiliations in ways that are discriminatory and not rooted in fact. You know, Killer Mike, who's been a big advocate about concerns related to the use of rap lyrics as evidence, has spoken out. And if we allow the courts to prosecute these men based on characters they've created and stories that pretend that they tell in rhyme, then next they'll be at your door. Jay-Z has weighed in kind of supporting some efforts to reform this practice. And so you do have major artists recognizing that this is concerning. And what's interesting is, you know, I've interviewed sort of amateur rappers over the years who have said, like, this is going to happen to some bigger artists and then it's going to blow up. And now we're really seeing that happen. The people who are standing up now, Killer Mike, Jay-Z, etc., What are they proposing or what are they backing exactly? Yeah, so there's a number of reform efforts in the works. In New York, there's state legislation that's proposed. While the bill aims to protect artistic expression, it wouldn't stop prosecutors from presenting lyrics to a jury, but they'd have to prove the work is literal rather than figurative or fictional. As opposed to now, where they can just introduce them and then it's up to defense lawyers to try to argue that they shouldn't be used in courts. And as we've seen, the courts and the judges generally side with the prosecution and allow it. And so this would be a pretty substantial shift in California. Lawmakers have passed legislation that essentially places limits on when prosecutors can cite defendants' quote-unquote creative expression. The bill requires a judge to determine if rap lyrics can be used as evidence during a criminal trial. So we've got two laws, one in New York, one in California, two states where typically we see liberal motions being passed much more quickly. The cases that we've been talking about didn't happen in either of those states. What hope is there of things changing legally at a national level? So federal lawmakers have also introduced federal legislation that is meant to limit this practice. This morning, a bill in Congress would protect recording artists from having their lyrics used against them in court. The measure is called the Rap Act, or Restoring Artist Protections. Proponents say it's aimed at protecting a musician's right to creative expression. And you have major labels and major artists supporting it. All that being said, there is not a lot of new federal laws that get passed in our current climate. And... These legislative efforts leave a lot of wiggle room for prosecutors to continue to use people's creative expression in the courtroom. And in particular, the California law, you know, experts I've talked to have some skepticism about how impactful it will actually be. Because under the current system, prosecutors still have to make the case that evidence that they're introducing, whatever that evidence may be, is relevant to the trial and is admissible, and judges still side with prosecutors. On the flip side, it is quite extraordinary that you have lawmakers actually passing legislation on this. You know, experts as well as rappers I've talked to who have said, like, they never would have imagined that you'd have, like, state houses and lawmakers taking on this issue and passing a law meant to address it. And so it does really shine a light on the practice. So in that sense, it is significant. It's a, it's a big moment to have these laws going forward, but there's some skepticism about the actual impact it will have in courtrooms. Now to a follow-up on a well-known New Orleans recording artist, McKinley Phipps Jr. The world didn't hear much from him for over two decades. For years, Mac's family and legal team appealed his sentence, but they didn't have any success. And then Finally, last summer, he was released from prison. Governor Edwards granted him clemency, and the parole board approved his release. He'd served 21 years of his 30-year sentence. 
Yeah, so he finally got released last year and he was first arrested in 2000. So just imagine what that that's like, you know, think about where you were in 2000 and where you are now. You know, he said it was almost sensory overload. Technology had advanced so far and society and everything that I still was kind of uh, in a state of shock when I made it home. He's been out of prison for just over a year now, but he hasn't been exonerated of the crime. You know, in, in the eyes of the law, he is still guilty. So what is his life actually like now? Is he still having to live under restrictions? Yeah, I was surprised to learn that he is still on parole. And so he's treated like anyone else who is leaving prison, finishing out your sentence, essentially. And so that means severe restrictions. It means he still has to pay fees. It means he gets regular visits from a parole officer who can show up at any time to check that he's not committing crimes. It means he has a curfew. It means there are limits on his movements Uh, limits on when he can travel, limits on where he can perform, um, and that he has to get permission to do a lot of basic activities. So it's extreme. You know, these are very serious restrictions that can make it really hard to to rebuild your life after prison. And, And those conditions will potentially last for nine years, which is essentially the remainder of his sentence. Another nine years. I mean, is there any chance of him being exonerated? Can he appeal again? There are potential legal avenues he could pursue, but, you know, he already pursued a lot of legal avenues while in prison to try to get the conviction actually thrown out. And so it remains to be seen what might be his next legal step and whether there are going to be any opportunities for him to to throw this case out. Obviously, there's a lot of attention on him now, a lot of media attention. People have recognized the severity of what he's been through. And, you know, the, the actual case has been litigated by investigative journalists who've looked at this. And so there's always some hope. But I think at this point, he's trying to just focus on himself, focus on his life and try to just make sure he meets the strict conditions that parole places on him. I'm really curious what this sentence has done to his relationship with music. You know, you described this little kid who at eight, nine years old was rapping at school and age 19 was signed to this major record label you know, he was looking at a career ahead of him that was so bright and that was all based around this thing that he loved, music. And then he found himself in prison with his lyrics being used against him in trial. I'm interested in what that does to a person and and their relationship with music. Yeah, it's been really interesting to get to know Mac over this, you know, time of reporting on this issue. And, you know, it's... It's really devastating to think about the way that having courtrooms use people's art affects their their life and affects sort of the way that they think about the art form. And I think that's going to be a long journey for him. It made me very conscious, more conscious of uh, the words I choose. And for some time, it, it, it frustrated my creativity. And, and um, you know, you lose confidence when you're in situations like that. Because here, here was that thing that I love so much, but it was my mechanism to leave what I felt was, you know, me and my family's conditions. Art gives us a, a, a 
opportunity to escape from the reality that we see. And when that escape mechanism is actually criminalized, I think that's an atrocity. And, you know, I'm still trying to find my voice again. Yo, check this out. Listen. Behold the son of Sheila, here with another thriller for those who were iller and in search of a healer. That was Mac Phipps. Thank you to him and to Sam Levin. You can read Sam's article about this at theguardian.com. I also want to recommend The Guardian's new investigative podcast series. It's called Can I Tell You a Secret? And it's hosted by Shirin Kale. All the episodes are available to download now, wherever you get your podcasts from. And I would really suggest giving it a listen. It's absolutely fascinating. This episode was produced by Rose de la Rabiti and sound designed by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.